Hello everyone, uh, welcome to the Scottish Rugby Podcast. I am Cammy Black, as always. Um, this week we've got an extra podcast. Uh, we are going to be speaking uh, a little bit about rugby finances, uh, looking at the differences between Northern and Southern Hemispheres, different models, different unions use, and um, we'll also be talking about the prospect of a Scottish third pro team. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us uh, on the blog, scottishrugbyblog.co.uk. Um, you can visit us on Twitter at scottrugbyblog or at Black, and find us on Instagram and Facebook too. You can email us, podcast at scottishrugbyblog.co.uk. Um, this is a little extra podcast this week. Um, we'll be back next week with the Wales uh, review and full Fiji preview, so don't forget to join us for that. But in the meantime, enjoy the rest of the podcast. Uh, we're joined now by Ian McCaw, who is the founder of RugbyFinancials.com, uh, which we think it's probably the first website to set out uh, international rugby finance um, rankings, Ian, would you reckon? You know, I think it is, Cammy, and thanks for inviting me on. Yes, I think it's uh, the first financial ranking website for any any rugby. Um, certainly when I came up with the idea for the site, I was I was actually looking for this information. So that was, that was part of the reason that I, I went and pulled it together. Um, before we start, because um, I'll get um, letters if I don't, um, what I have to ask you, what club socks would you wear if you were selected for the Barbarians? I would go with Borough Muir. Um, it was my first uh, first ever uh, rugby club that I played when I was a young lad in up in Edinburgh. And uh, some great memories. We, we did pretty well that season. And I think we also got a lot, a, along to the Scotland-England semi-final, the World Cup. So... It was great, great times. So I would, I would definitely go with them. I've played a few clubs since then, uh, but I think Barrymuir's really where the the heart the heart is. Yeah. Um. So, so you said you you were looking for the information on rugby finances. Is that is that what got you started then and gave you the idea for for putting this website together? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking actually about you know the overall world rankings on the on the you know the rugby world rankings website, and then it was um, you know part of my role professionally has been to look at businesses, uh, particularly relating to mergers and acquisitions, and you start to think about things like their financial performance. And And it struck me that there must be a link between rugby financial performance and, and, and the match performances. And so I did a bit, of, uh, bit of research. There's a lot of information out there in terms of the individual annual reports, but there was no consolidated view as to how did each of the nations rank financially. So... You know what started off as a bit of a personal project, just doing some some you know Excel-based analysis. I realised that there was a lot of good information that would be that would have a broader appeal, and um, so I pulled I pulled together the website, and I think um, you know hopefully it's it's quite interesting for for fans. But I think in particular, I've managed to kind of link it through. I've been in touch with the Doddy Weir Foundation and linked it through to to them as well as almost a kind of pay it forward type mechanism. So it gives it a a, a kind of bigger purpose, if you like. Hopefully, if it gets a bit of interest. Yeah. So, so how do you go about sort of ranking the ranking the teams? What have you used sort of a, a methodology from somewhere else, or is it something you've had to sort of come up with? Yeah. Well, ultimately, rugby unions are are just businesses. Uh, you know, most of them are um, you know private limited or public limited uh, businesses. Um, there's a few other ones that are kind of you know friendly societies and. and voluntary associations, but they all operate like businesses. So in terms of the rankings, they, there are really three metrics that are quite important when it comes to rugby union, and, and it isn't directly comparable to most businesses. Um, and so the, the first one is really that 
you know you need to look at their their revenues so how much how much do they bring in that's 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 a big part of this you know this is ticket sales and broadcasting and box offices and that type of thing also non rugby events is becoming quite quite a theme now so concerts and football matches and so forth uh, the second metric is, you know, really how much do they reinvest back into the sport? And really, this is the, this is probably the most important thing. How much do they pump back into their national game at, at both professional level and grassroots level? Um, and then the third thing is, you know, how how well do they manage their costs? So, really, you want to make sure if your if your rugby chief executive is driving around in a Ferrari, then you, you know you know there's something you know there's something wrong right you you really want them to be driving around in the most humble cars and keeping the cost down because they're not they're not there to to kind of make a profit they're there to reinvest that money back into the sport so those are the three metrics that, that the site focuses around and I've put in a few other ones as well so is there i mean when you've looked at it all and you put sit down you look you put it all together because there's different you've got different rankings on the site for reinvestment profit operating costs and debt and, and things like that and, and and it seems to vary as to who's sort of at the top in each yep. rank i mean is, is there a sort of an overall sort of ideal model that that sort of delivers sort of consistently across all those areas yeah th- there is there's a few themes that come out i mean the when you look at when you start to get into the different rugby models, the operating models, if you like, of those businesses, they are they are quite unique and distinct. And in part, that's down to you know how do they contract players? You know, are they fully central models like Scotland and Ireland are? Um, are they kind of uh, more of central contracting, but they have their own individual clubs? That's more like the kind of New Zealand and and Wales, although Wales is a bit of a hybrid because they now own the Dragons um, and. Then there's the decentral models of you know kind of England, Australia, South Africa. So so they're all unique in terms of how they contract, and then they're unique in terms of the Northern Hemisphere teams are all stadium owners. Um, so they either fully own or partly own the the stadiums that they that they play in, uh, and the Southern Hemisphere teams all essentially rent stadiums. They don't play at any particular stadium. They can they can pay as you go type thing. So so you look across all of that, and what you tend to see is that. In terms of the efficiency of getting, uh, you know, the you know uh, the bang for the buck on the ticket sales. So every every pound of ticket spent, how much of it gets reinvest reinvested back into the national game? What comes across clear is that fully central model is the most efficient at doing it. So Scotland and Ireland, just to put it into context, so every pound you spend, say with Ireland, uh, going to an Ireland match, eighty-two pence of that. Or 82 euro cents, whatever it is in, in Ireland, goes back into their game. And for Scotland, it's 75 pence. So they're really efficient. Whereas the decentral models of, of like England, for example, for every pound spent, only 51 pence goes back into the reinvestment back into the sport. So so those models are really quite different in terms of how they how they support their local games. I mean, it's it's interesting when we, when you sort of talk about the sort of central contracting of players. There's there's been a, I think unions outside of Ireland and Scotland sort of uh, and fans sort of look upon those with some scepticism, I think, and, and sort of wonder about the transparency of you know is it easy to sort of work out how much um, they are spending on on players because I think there's I think particularly within the Pro 14 because there's not a salary cap. There's this idea that somehow Ireland are um, not cheating, but I think that there's that suggestion in some areas that, 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 that they are sort of paying above the odds for their players somehow, or is that just the benefit of the way that they are structured and that they, they, they can 
pay them that way. I mean, is is there any way to sort of work out player costs, or is it sort of hidden amongst sort of wider expenditure? Yeah, look, it, it you can It doesn't have the same level of transparency clearly as a standalone club that, ha, like a, a Saracens, for example, that have their own set of accounts. Um, Saracens, you can get a very clear view as to, you know, they spend about ten million per year on on player costs. Um, that that level of transparency isn't there for for Ireland and Scotland because it's all kind of amalgamated into a, a much larger set of accounts. Actually, Scotland does provide a bit of a breakdown of it, to be fair to them. Ireland, Ireland don't whatsoever. Um, so it's very, very tricky <laughs> to know how much they're spending. But what, but what you can kind of look at, though, is you kind of know how much a, a, a club, how, how much it takes to run a club. And so, you know, you might not know the individual player salaries and, and how much they're playing Johnny Sexton, for example, but you can kind of see that, you know, in broad terms, they, they've actually kept their operating costs quite low, which would suggest to me that, you know, they're, they're not paying over the odds. I, I'd probably say some of the English Premier Clubs are playing over the odds for some of their players and they've kind of got into that commercial loop of, of, of chasing, you know, big money. I think Ireland, um, part of the attraction, if you're Johnny Sexton, there is that, you know, you could well be the World Cup winner, whereas if he goes and plays for English Premier League team or or Irish uh, or a French team, he might get the salary, but every chance he'll be injured and he won't get that, that opportunity. So I think they, their benefit is is probably slightly different than just purely salary, although I'm sure he is getting paid pretty handsomely. Yeah, um, I mean, we're looking ahead to this weekend and, and you've, you mentioned pre, uh, just before there about um, unions owning their own stadium and we've got this this strange fourth international strange for us in Scotland anyway um, happening down in Cardiff I mean how how much do there's been a lot written about this but how much do Wales actually need this sort of fourth international to take place in order to sort of fund themselves I guess sure they actually a few years ago this would have been uh, a must have uh, set of matches because they were seriously in, in debt Um you know, I actually produced an article on the on the Rugby Financials website talking about Wales and their and their debt and how they've recovered from it. So they, they've actually got themselves into good financial shape. And in fact, Wales on a on a kind of per capita basis, i.e., you know, the kind of number, the amount of money they produce for the size of the population, they're actually the the, the wealthiest of of all the nations right now. So they're, they're actually in pretty good shape. They're, they've only got debts of about six million. Uh, you know, t- ten years ago that was sixty million. Um, so they've they've really got they've really got on top of 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 that side of things. So they, they, clearly, though, they're cost based. So they, they they do own a very big stadium. They do you know have a lot of staff and and all the rest of it. So you know their cost base is is about forty. You know they have about forty five million per year that they they will have no matter what. So so they need to keep the Millennium Stadium or sorry the Principality Stadium uh, very busy uh, and so. You know, having this match is one of you know several matches that they'll have over the next kind of twelve months, and uh, you know, and amongst other things like concerts and, and football matches and so forth. So you know, they definitely they definitely want to have the match and they want to have four four autumn internationals. It's it's probably not quite as tight a situation as it was a few years back, where they were in 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 quite serious debt. And then, the, I mean, the other thing, sort of at, at international level, if we, we keep it there for a minute, and I want to talk to you about club level in a minute. But the um, the, the this idea that we've uh, of of a global season is is not just being touted around for um, 
you know reasons of player welfare it also seems to be sort of a, a sort of cry from the southern hemisphere unions in particular that, that somehow they're not getting a fair a fair crack at this some I, I you know i don't know whether it's just logistics of, of travel or, or or what but but somehow they feel um that the current system is unfair i mean is is there a disparity between sort of southern hemisphere and northern hemisphere rugby outside of sort of you know new zealand being a bit of a freak yeah, there there is a yeah significant uh, difference and a growing growing difference. So that so you know whilst you know when the game turned professional, you know whatever ninety five, the Southern Hemisphere were were probably the richest um, uh, kind of unions. That has really flipped around over the last few years. So the Northern Hemisphere teams, if you compare say the top three Northern Hemisphere teams with the top three Southern Hemisphere teams, you know in terms of revenue terms, just to make it equal, three 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 aside. Yeah, the Northern Hemisphere is about got a, generally it's about 120 million more per per year, um, and it's growing. That that gap is growing, and so the only way to close that gap and, and kind of level the playing field, as you, if you like, is to have cross hemisphere tournaments. So you see during a, a Lions Tour year, that gap narrows. So New Zealand obviously hosted it last year. You know that gap between north and south narrowed to I think it, you know it was it was under kind of 40 million, under 30 million maybe. Um, you know, so having those cross hemisphere tournaments essentially allows that, that that revenue flow from, you know, essentially a wealthier European audience to kind of flow down into um, the southern hemisphere, either through tours or or broadcasting and and so forth, and and so I think that's part of the reasoning to have this this kind of league of nations is to increase that flow uh, between the two hemispheres. I, you know, fundamentally, I think unless they do this, there there will be a real discoupling between north and south to the extent that um, you know I think the northern hemisphere could literally start dominating the sport. I, I say New Zealand is a bit of a freak in the south. Um, they're the only one that doesn't have any debt and any um, you know they're, they're well they're well funded. They've actually got you know uh, you know lots of bank cash and so forth. So they're they're in good shape. But they're the only one. I mean South Africa right now look in serious financial difficulty and they've actually announced they're going to be cutting in half the number of professional player contracts. I mean, they, they, they are, you know, serious indebted. They're not producing any profit right now. Uh, Australia's, you know, they're, they're struggling in terms of their gate receipts. So it's the total opposite in the North where everything looks much more rosy from a financial perspective. I mean, the, 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 I mean, um, New Zealand have talked a lot about sort of having to spend their, their spending is increased due to, I guess the, 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 the um the money that's available in the north and attracting their players they're having to spend a lot more on, on player retention i think probably particularly for fringe players that are maybe you know not not guaranteed uh to be in the all black shirt sort of consistently so we've seen a lot of of, of travel north i mean has that been ref- is is that reflected in, in new zealand's financial position have we seen an increase in expenditure from them yeah definitely i mean i cannot even uh, have a look at it uh, specifically but um i mean yes the the all of the unions their revenues are the good news for them is the revenues are going up but their costs are are also um you know increasing so uh, i'd need to kind of pull up cami and go into the specifics of it but um but yeah i mean you know for sure they're they're it's now a global game and they're competing you know with wealthy french and english uh, clubs for you know, fantastic players. So, so you know, the costs the costs are, are increasing. I think again, the, the advantage New Zealand have is they actually have a pretty thriving uh, Super League system down there, 
and they also have you know the, the attraction of you know what is probably the greatest brand in, in world rugby the all blacks so that you know if you're any up-and-coming player you know you there's quite a you know a financial attraction to stay there still because they're you know still well funded the super league and then you get that opportunity to play for the all blacks which you know i guess is every kid's dream right yeah so <laughs> well i mean it, we i think when we we sort of were talking about doing this podcast we we talked about um how hard um financially world cup years are for unions it isn't really something i'd really i'd really considered before that that 2019 for 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 all for for for, for for unions is is a difficult year because they they miss matches is that right that they, they they don't have the autumn tests and that's a, presumably for the northern hemisphere teams that's a significant income boost for them that that's right um if, i mean if you if you saw the you know england's uh, world cup uh, last year which actually improved the finances sorry the world cup of 2015 which improved the finances in in 2016 um you know, it was, it was a huge revenue boost for, for England. So they went from producing something like 180 million typically uh, to near enough, uh, I think there were about 400 million. So that is, you know, the, the World Cup brought in over 200 million. But it does, it, the, the, that, that revenue focus that it gives that host nation, uh, that has to come from somewhere. And it, and it actually comes from the fact that there's a lot of games that then therefore don't get played you know, like you say, the autumn internationals and and so forth, and and not just those internationals, but you can imagine all the the different games that are being played around Japan and Fiji and so forth. That you know, is, is all that revenue is taken away from those clubs. So it's almost like a, a kind of um, you know, the the sea kind of goes out with the, the with the Rugby World Cup. Somebody does well, but lots of other clubs uh, really struggle. So so this coming year is really important for. You know, the all the unions in the north. Um, clearly, it's being played in Japan, but all of our all the European uh, unions to um, shore up their um, their finances because it will be a leaner year next year. Yeah, I mean, one one question uh, we get, and we we touched on it earlier when we were talking about um, the Ireland and Scotland models and and how much they pay players. One question we get a lot of is is you know how feasible is setting up and and, and running a pro team. And when you look at the the English Premiership and every single club almost without exception, seems to be in some sort of horrendous debt. Um, is it, I mean, is it? Is there a, I guess, it, is setting up or running a rugby, a professional rugby outfit, an attractive proposition financially? It, it's, um, it's borderline, I would suggest right now. The, you know, if you look at the clubs that are the most successful you know, putting aside Ireland's Irish clubs because they're centrally funded, but if you look at the standalone clubs, uh, so Saracens is is funded by a guy called Nigel Ray, a famous um, you know investor. Um, Bruce Craig is is behind Bath. Um, Jackie Lorenzetti's at Racing ninety two. So they've all got these incredibly wealthy, either multi millionaire or multi billionaire individuals funding these clubs and. For them, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a hobby. They don't, I guess, to a certain extent, they're, they're clear. I'm sure they would want to make money out of it, but they don't have to. Um, so it's more of a more of a luxury for them. So if you try to look at it as in terms of a of a standalone, you know, viable product, um, you know, Scottish, you know, trying to take maybe one of the Scottish teams and, and set it up as a standalone standalone business, um, it that that's going to be quite quite tough right because you've got to you've got then got to say well how how viable is are the current clubs 
um, you know, where would you establish, you know, a third, um, you know, a third Scottish rugby club? You know, you've already got one at Glasgow, you've got one at Edinburgh. So where would you place a third one? And then you start to look at the money. I can kind of go into it and, and, and uh, give you some ideas. But if you start to look at the kind of money aspect of it, you need, you need to be producing about at least 10 million per annum to stand up a, a rugby club and to make it re- relatively competitive. And, and that kind of money is, is comparable with like, you know, Hearts Football Club, for example, they do about 11, 11 million per year. So, you know, you're talking, you know, reasonable, reasonable sums of money. So, so the whole thing is, is quite um, challenging, but it is, it is doable. Um, I think the biggest challenge is, can you get the crowds to the gate and, 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 and create sufficient interest? Um, you know, if you if you can crack the back of that and get the commercial support and so forth, you you might you might be able to stand up a club. But I think as a viable investment product right now, it's it's really borderline. Yeah, and I mean, last I mean, is is that going for? I mean, obviously Scotland have got the two um, two pro teams in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And previously, they've tried. I think with Edinburgh years ago, it was tried as as going out to a franchise. I mean, is that is that the way the SRU need to go, or 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 is sort of having that control sort of central to, to the way that they're trying to operate things? The, I mean, I think the if they want to expand the game in Scotland, at some point over the next few years, they will need to go down some kind of franchising route. I think that's just the natural course of building the sport. You know, you, there's only so much you can do as a central union uh, if you can attract external investment and make it a viable product, then it will grow quicker. Um, now, I don't think the right model for the SRU would ever to be to relinqu- relinquish control of our IRA club, so i.e. to give away 100% of the equity to someone and let them run it. I think that that's going to create the situation you have in England where you know, there's constant tensions between club rugby and international rugby. Um, and, you know, I think that you don't want to be in that situation. So I think, you know, for the SRU, they do have some options. They could uh, retain a 51% stake in the franchisees and maybe then partner with a commercial partner who's more interested in putting money into it, um, maybe getting some branding out of the back of it. So it could be, you know, a big car company or insurance company or something like that that, that, that kind of sees the value from that perspective. But the SRU still retain control. Um, or they could, you know, potentially look at um, taking more of a, a minority share, keeping them a top minority share, 25% stake or whatever, and, and retaining retain a board seat and still having influence so far over the sport but i think going down the route where you have zero control that that would be a mistake um you know there's there's too much fundamentally club rugby uh if it's successful is there in supporting the international game i think as soon as you lose control then you know you're at, you're at, you're almost competing over the same set of players yeah. and and that's that's you know, well, we see what happens in England all the time, right? Yeah, so. and we we had a question in actually um, on Twitter, and I, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not. It was Ian Wheeler who who has asked the question about um, when we talked about um, unions being in control of the stadium. But from from a club point of view, I mean, obviously Ember have got their their little mini Murrayfield come along, but but it's, it's Glasgow Council that own Scotstown, and 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 it was Ian was asking whether or not that's something that Glasgow or the SRU should be looking at and, and, and owning their own stadium or whether that's that's actually a necessity or whether it's the current arrangement is fine. 
in the in the current model where it's centrally funded, it, it's it's okay that it's you know these are standalone. Sorry, these are these these stadiums are owned by by a third party, like say Glasgow Council or or I guess with Edinburgh, it'll be the SRU owns it. It's on their their grants. I think where you try to move to more of a standalone business, you really need to have your own stadium because. If you look at the way that rugby clubs make money, maybe only 70% of the money actually comes in from uh, rugby events, uh, uh, you know, matches. Uh, 30% would be coming from non-rugby events. So it could be, um, you know, uh, concerts or potentially football or, you know, it could be, you know, other, you know, kind of renting out the, the, the facilities for big corporate hospitality or whatever it is. Um, and so if you don't own your stadium, you're, you're all of a sudden, you don't have that access to that. Somebody else is going to take take that money. So, and I think this is where the Southern Hemisphere have gotten themselves into a little bit as well, because they don't own stadiums. They, the only time they're making money is when they're playing matches, whereas in the North, they're, they're making money when they're not playing matches. So I think, you know, if I was going to set up a club in Scotland, I would want to own the stadium so that you could have the ability to make money. Because fundamentally the challenge is rugby is, is, doesn't make quite enough money to sustain itself. So you need to look for these additional income streams. Sure. Yeah, I, mean, the, I mean, in terms of additional income streams, something, um, again, when we were planning the podcast, it was around the time when there was talk of, and it seems to have died away now, that this talk of, a private equity um, firm, the same ones that were sniffing around the Premiership, were, were going to buy the, um, how is it, the, the, the sort of the, the image rights or the TV rights or the licensing rights of the Pro 14, um, to try and sort of tout it around or, or or sell that on. And it was, I think, a lot of people were sort of wondering what what the benefit of of having a company or an organisation like that come in and and do that for something like the Pro 14 is, and and, and why they couldn't just do it themselves. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it, so the the companies that are looking at that are typically private equity uh, houses who, you know, will typically the way that they operate is they will have some, you know, something called a buyout fund where they will want to retain a fifty one percent stake at least of any business that they they own, but for that they will put in a significant amount of of capital. Some some of that money will be their own money, and some of it will be leveraged. I.e., they'll take out. Uh, bank funding, bank debt, and actually use the organisation they're they're buying to to pay for that. So, so suppose the advantage is you, you're essentially getting a, a kind of bunch of professional managers coming in. Uh, these people have run big uh, um, sporting companies like uh, CVC, for example, have run Formula One. Um, they're obviously coming with uh, money they're looking to put into the into the game, and they are entirely focused on growing it as quickly as they possibly can, typically over a kind of 10 to 12 year type cycle. So it's a bit of a trade-off if you're the Pro 14, because clearly you would have to relinquish um, either full control or part control of, of your um, of your business. Um, the, the flip side is that they might accelerate it a lot more quicker because they can put money into the sport and fund it and, and grow, the, grow the league quicker than you know, almost like the organic way that the Pro 14 is working just now. So it's it, interesting times. I do think that we will, my suspicion is we will see some kind of private equity investments in the game because, uh, you know, at a, at a kind of macro level, rugby is one of the, you know, one a, a highly attractive and fast-growing sport. You know, it's growing kind of 
you know, it grew about 40% over five years. Uh, and if you can see that kind of penetration sinking into, you know, further into, you know, European audiences and, and global audiences, rugby is going to become more and more popular. And, and they obviously see that growth opportunity. Yeah. Um, well, Ian, that's been really uh, a really interesting chat. Thank you very much for for joining us. We'll, we'll um, get you back on the podcast again. I'm sure in future if we've got um, to, to chat over things like uh, like like this, when uh, as as always they raise their heads. So uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having you on, coming. That's great, Ian. Thank you very much for that. That's really good. Excellent. Excellent. Really well. I'm going to get it up for lunchtime. Okay. Okay. Good. Cheers. Good. Thanks. I'd... All right. Cheers, mate. Catch cheers. Bye.